Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Ki When You Go Out. The address is Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10, through chapter 25, verse 19. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Tor teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 4th of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher bachar banu mekol ha'amim venatan lanu et Torato Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen this is Parashat Ki Teitze. Uh, it's pronounced Teitze. Say Ki, like, like a key that you put in a lock. And then Tates, T-A-T-E-S. And then the word Say, Ki Teitze. In many ways, this portion actually picks up with the theme that we introduced in last week's Torah portion with the uh, Parashat Shof team. And the theme of last week's Torah portion was justice. Now, much in every way, this week's Torah portion centers on uh, what we call the practical application of such communal justice in the land of Israel. Remember, the practical application of scripture is often referred to as halacha, that is to say, the way in which to walk out the commandments practically. That's what the Hebrew word halacha usually refers to. Sometimes the word halacha is um, a reference to Jewish law, but Jewish law in itself is really the practical application of what God already handed down to us through Moshe. So Halakha is um, is really the, um, the, the how did I describe it last week? The humanization of the Word of God. Now, for some people, and I'm not sure exactly why, but for some people, this notion of practical uh, practical application of Scripture seems to strike them as unsettling. Again, I'm not sure exactly why. Um, I can only assume, uh, you know, I can gesture uh, or guesstimate. Um, perhaps it stems from the overwhelming traditional application and misuse of scripture prevalent in much of rabbinic Judaism today. 
what do I mean? Well, in essence, in, in many uh, circles of traditional Judaism, where the, the term rabbinic Judaism and the term traditional Judaism are somewhat synonymous in my uh, commentaries. In essence, um, tradition is given more weight than scripture. That's what I mean by um, the the uh, traditional application of scripture. And, it, and perhaps it's that application that becomes unsettling for many um, Christians today. They look at Judaism and they see Judaism as nothing more than a, they, a works-based religion or a merit theology. And uh, it, it turns their stomach to think that God's word should be walked out. Um, what would be the alternative, I imagine? God's word should be felt? God's word should be thought out? I'm not sure exactly what the alternative that they're offering to traditional Judaism is. At any rate, um, it is unfortunate that traditional Judaism takes the practical word of God and walks it out in such a way so that tradition does sometimes uh, receive more weight than the scripture. Um, I don't believe God's word should be treated that way, and it's my aim to uh, correct such misgivings. However, because of such notions, um, I do need to briefly address this issue again before going into our teaching this week. So if you didn't get last week's commentary, go to the website at graftedin.com and either print out or view the the, uh, the PDF version, or of course you're always welcome to listen to or download the MP3 version. Uh, put it on your iPod, take it with you wherever you go. These commentaries are made free as long as I can uh, um, keep producing them and as long as Hashem will continue to um, provide the, um, the necessary means to produce them. So um, I'll provide them for free. So let's let's borrow some notes from last week's commentary real quick, and what I'll do is provide a summary of halacha and the concept of oral tradition, and that will provide a segue into this week's Torah portion. Okay, this next um, paragraph is really a uh, a summarization of last week's commentary. Quote: Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy talks about the details surrounding official and legal matters. Now, of particular interest is the subject dealt with in chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. To be sure, the sages of old understood this section to be talking about the matters of halakha and the authority of what is known in rabbinic circles as oral Torah. Um, from a cursory reading of this chapter in Deuteronomy, it appears to be a valid teaching about establishing a governing body of legal authority based on the spoken opinion of the judge of the day. You'll have to go back and read Deuteronomy 17, 8-13 if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Now, this passage is where the halakha gains its strength and application, particularly within Judaic circles. This term, as I already mentioned, halakha, is roughly translated as the way in which to walk, uh, particularly the way in which a Jew is to walk, I might add. The rabbis see in this passage an opportunity to establish the tradition of the oral Torah. You see, as they see it, this passage instructs its readers, which again is naturally going to be uh, the nation of Israel. It instructs its readers in accordance with the Torah they teach you, you are to carry out the judgment they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left uh, from the verdict they declare to you. That's, of course, lifted from chapter 17 of Deuteronomy and verse 11. Now, taking the verse in its most natural and literal sense, as we read it, it does seem to validate the right for the rabbis to come along and to impose their judgments on all succeeding generations. 
and to strengthen the suggested interpretation by the rabbis. We have a first century rabbi by the name of Yeshua. Of course, that's Jesus, right? Um, uh, he had this to say to his crowd, quote, The Torah teachers in the Prushim, he said, sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it, but don't do what they do because they talk, but don't act, end quote. That, of course, is lifted from Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. What Yeshua is addressing here in this particular passage in Matthew is the issue of hypocrisy when it comes to correctly interpreting the Torah, yet failing to implement such teaching into our lives. That's why it's hypocritical to tell others to do what it says, but then not to follow what it says yourself, or more um more uh, correctly do as I say but not as I do um, as we looked at the passages last week in the matters of Halakha and the whole tradition behind the oral Torah the conclusion I had come to and which I'm going to state here in this uh, particular passage here or paragraph here is um, our Lord does not condone the oral tradition as binding end quote so that's that was basically the issue that we talked about last week and before we go back to our Torah portion for today, let me just again reemphasize: we as Messianic Jews take our cue from the Master. That's Yeshua. Everything that He has told us to do, we shall do. Now, of course, this includes Christians, but the the um, difference in application chiefly between, as I see it, Christianity and Messianic Judaism, even though we both take our orders from the Master, Messianic Judaism has chosen to also embrace the written Torah as handed down through Moses. And so we take the five books of Moses as foundational to everything that the rest of the Bible teaches us. This would include everything from Joshua through what Christians call Malachi, but what we Jews refer to as Second Chronicles in our, in our Tanakh. Christians refer to the Tanakh as the Old Testament. The foundational five books of Moses, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, forms the foundation for the entire rest of the scriptures. This would include what Christians call Matthew through Revelation, but what many Messianic Jews simply refer to as either the Apostolic Scriptures, the Brit Chadashah, the Renewed Covenant, or as some have begun to refer to it as the Latter Ketuvim. The term New Testament, as you can already guess, carries a pejorative tone and is usually avoided by many Messianic Jews, to include myself. My point is this. The oral tradition, as is explained in traditional Judaism, consists of the legal rulings as has been handed down from one succeeding generation to the next, particularly within the Jewish leadership. This, of course, is seen most easily within the rulings of the rabbis. Now, if you'd like to um, take a peek at their notes, then I suggested in last week's commentary that you pick up a copy of the Talmud. This is no easy feat. The Talmud, you understand, is a voluminous work. Um, it, it six orders uh, of of of, um, of categories, I should say, have been uh, outlined by the uh, Talmud. Um, the six orders of the Mishnah, I should say, um, dealing with all kinds of topics, and and these 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 sedarim, these these books <coughs> of the mix of the Mishnah. The Hebrew word for six, um, uh, the Hebrew word for sixth, I should say, is shlishi, uh, but shisha is uh, uh, the um, 
the the Hebrew word for six, and because of this, uh, uh, a um, a nickname for the uh, for the the Talmud or the Mishnah is the Shas, um, the, the Shisha Sederim, the six orders of the Mishnah, and so what we have is um, it's it's so lengthy and so huh, I don't know how to describe it. it it's it's I want to say it's 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 not ordered according to any type of legal ruling that you would probably be used to as Christians. Um, it follows topics that, quite frankly, only the the, <laughs> the Talmudists can understand, and and it takes a lifetime to to study such a work. I don't recommend you go out to go to your average bookstore and start looking for a book called the Talmud. You're not going to find one book called the Talmud. It's so. Um, it's so large that it's broken down and usually into several volumes. For instance, um, Newsner's printed version is about 22 volumes, if I remember. I've got Newsner's, Jacob Newsner's uh, CD-ROM version, and that, that makes for a handy resource, especially since you can pop it in your computer and um, electronically search for the topics that you're looking for. Otherwise, we're talking about an encyclopedic set. Of works, you know, if you buy an encyclopedia, you know, letters A through Z, you're not look, you're not going to get one book. Uh, if it's a good encyclopedia, a good encyclopedia set, you're going to get you know v- volumes, you know, uh, you know, ten, twenty, thirty, whatever volumes it takes uh, to to uh, get the whole set. That's kind of what the Talmud is. So, the Talmud is the oral tradition, and within the Talmud, we find all of the topics dealt with necessary to. Um, uh, necessary to to explain Jewish life. It's like a constitution. Um, it's case law. It's eighty uh, percent halakha and about twenty percent other. Um, and halakha is going to be the rulings of the rabbis passed down again from one generation to the next. So how does this affect the Christian, the average Christian? Well, for the average Christian, they're not even going to be interested in halakha. They're not even going to be interested in oral tradition. Why? Because traditionally, the church is not even interested in the written Torah, at least not as it speaks to the everyday life of a Christian, at least, uh, you know, to everyday matters. How to tie your tzitzit, how long should they be, what color should the tochelet be, uh, how to observe Sabbath, when can you rest, what does that rest look like, um, what kinds of malacha work are permitted on Sabbath, and on and on and on the topics are, are, are addressed in the Talmud. So you can see why it's not going to be a very helpful um, uh, resource for your average Christian, because again, standard Christianity has dismissed the written Torah as relevant for the life of a believer. Therefore, if the written Torah has been dismissed, how much more um, has the oral tradition been dismissed? But the reason I had to bring the topic up is because we Messianic Jews don't easily dismiss the written tradition. The oral Torah is based on the written tradition. The oral Torah is based on the Torah of Moshe. In fact, according to the sages of today, the, the rabbis of today, and, and Judaism as a whole, the um, oral tradition was handed down at the same time as the written tradition. So you can see where they, the, 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 the topics are interwoven. Where do I stand as a uh, Jewish believer in Messiah? Well, I'll go on record as saying that I don't dismiss the oral tradition altogether. However, I don't embrace it altogether. Rather, I do practice a picking and choosing where when the oral tradition contradicts what I perceive the written tradition to be saying, and yes, there are places where um, some 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 uh, um, wrestling goes on between the written and the oral. 
you would think they shouldn't be, but they do. Um, when I find a contradiction in the oral to the written, well, then I side with the tradi- I side with the written, and I dismiss the oral. I'll give you a, a case in point, uh, uh, an example I used last week. There are several places within traditional Jewish understanding of the of the written Torah, and this 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 understanding is is brought out in the oral tradition, where uh, Gentiles are forbidden from learning the written Torah. To be sure, they're forbidden from learning, as it were, the oral Torah. So, um, I don't hold such a tradition. I, I believe such a tradition to be contradictory to the written Torah. I believe that God's written Torah was um, was uh, designed to be accepted and embraced by anyone who comes into covenant with God. This would, of course, would include, include Gentile believers in Yeshua. So, if a tradition in the oral uh, material contradicts the written material, such as the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, well then I will always side with the written commands jettison, uh, and I will jettison uh, the oral command there. And that's why it becomes relevant for Christians today, because they must understand how Jewish people think and how they interact with um, modern Christianity, and how we Messianic Jews are caught in the middle of this struggle between Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Christians, or Judaism and Christianity. Because we Messianic Jews retain our loyalty to the written commands, and wherever applicable, whenever there's no um, conflict again, we also retain our loyalty to the oral tradition. So I suppose that's all I have to say on the matter. If you, again, have further questions about uh, the oral tradition, the Talmud, the Mishnah, and such, uh, go ahead and write to me in care of this website, or you can drop me a line at the email that's at the end of this commentary. Okay? Let's move on to our Torah portion, Parashat Kiteitze, and let's talk about the central topic of the Torah portion today. And you know what it's going to be? We're going to talk about marriage. So this next section is entitled Marriage and Divorce. Let me just give a general warning right up front, a, um, a disclaimer. I am no marriage expert. Now, I am married. That's true. Some would say, well, Ariel, that's all it takes for you to become a marriage expert is to just be married because God will do the rest. I've been married now for about seven years, going on uh, eight years, I suppose. And uh, I've known my wife um, for uh, probably a year and a half to two years before we got married. She's Korean, South Korean. And uh, I met her while I was stationed with the Army over in Seoul, South Korea. We courted, and eventually we got married in Korea. It was a wonderful Korean wedding, which I could uh, share all the pictures with you all, but um, I have not been given permission to do so. The reason I'm sharing this information with you is because I want you to know that just being married doesn't make me a marriage expert, to be sure. Marriage is tough. It is, by far, the toughest assignment that God will ever give to a person, male or female. I have to um, come to that conclusion. It is the toughest assignment that you'll ever get. And it's an assignment that you will um, be working on for the rest of your life, as long as the two of you are going to be married. And I pray that your marriages will be long and lasting ones, those of you who are listening to my podcast and happen to be married. But the disclaimer I want to give to you today is because I'm no marriage expert, I'm no marriage counselor, I do not, um, I do not wish for anyone to write in emails to me with uh, marriage questions. You can use the information in the commentary as reference material. That, that's the way I intended it to be. I simply culled information from various sources, various books, various websites, um, uh, and, and, and uh, advice that I've uh, gotten than I have. That is to say, people who have been married longer than I have. So 
the commentary I'm going to share with you today is just my um, it's it's just my my um, my findings on this information. It is um, some some information from a Judaic point of view. But again, please do not consider me a marriage counselor. I am not a marriage counselor. I'm not um, licensed to counsel anyone regarding marriages. Um, you know, again, if you're if you are going to send in emails and you have questions about marriage, please be aware that I, I'm not um, I'm not qualified to answer questions about marriage. Uh, you know, I can give maybe my my general opinion on, on on some topics, but that's about as far as I can go. That having been said, let's talk about marriage and divorce. This next section is titled "Marriage and Divorce." And, of course, of great concern to the community living during the time period of the writing of this work, Deuteronomy, as well as for any time period for that matter, was the area of sexual relations. Now, those of you who have been raised in a Christian home obviously are aware that God intended sex to be experienced within the confines and boundaries of marriage. To be sure, a great deal of time is spent addressing possible situations that might arise during the course of everyday dealings with each other. You put a man and a woman in a room, and it doesn't matter whether they're married or not, and there's going to be chemistry. And God being aware of this, because of course he made us, he's going to address these issues. The Torah is not silent when it comes to marital relations and sexual union. Uh, you know, The Torah has, has, has a, a lot to say about what is prohibited and what is allowed, now, not a lot is said on marriage the topic itself. In fact, in all of the five books that Moshe authored, only here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is marriage and divorce specifically addressed head-on. Isn't that interesting? And with this address, we only have a scant four verses that deal with the topic of marriage. Now, that's not all the Bible has to say about marriage. Obviously, you can read through the rest of the prophets, the writings, and the apostolic scriptures, and you'll find more information about marriage. And accordingly, I'm going to pull some information from um, you know, as much of the Bible as I can in my commentary. But we need to talk about marriage and divorce so that we can establish a framework in which to understand uh, what takes place um, when marriages don't work. In other words... Marriage comes first, divorce comes later, if at all. Um, obviously, it is uh, God's intention that relationships don't go sour, but um, it's a fact of life that relationships do uh, go south from time to time, and so the Bible addresses both marriage and divorce. Now, the matter uh, of marriage and divorce became a major source of disagreement by the time Yeshua entered the communal scene of Israel. During his time period, which is the first century, two major schools of thought, these schools, of course, would have been within the Zukot, the pairs that we talked about um, last week, two major schools of thought existed, and they both vied for the majority opinion in the community. And the, uh, the two schools that we're referring to were the conservative school of Rabbi Shammai, otherwise known as Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai, and then we had the liberal school of Rabbi Hillel, otherwise known as Beit Hillel. Again, both of these schools supplied their interpretation of Moses' work here in our Torah portion. The Talmud, 
as I've already mentioned earlier, gives us our most complete look into the minds of the early Judaisms of Yeshua's day. I say that because I want you Christians to be aware of this. If you want to get an inside peek into the Judaisms of Yeshua's day, uh, and it, and you are not able to gather this inside information from reading the New Testament, well then, the Talmud is going to be your source. Now, again, Talmud being so large, in reference, you may have to pick up a smaller book. For instance, I recommend... Um, Newsner put out a smaller book known as Everyman's Talmud, and uh, you can pick this up. Uh, is it Newsner? Give me a second. Let me let me check. Uh, the foreword was by Newsner. Abraham Cohen actually wrote the book. Abraham Cohen's Everyman's Talmud. It's a peek into the Talmud and uh, some of the topics that it addresses, and that might be a better way for you, a smaller bite-sized version, as it were, of the Talmud if you're interested. But at any... any, any uh, uh, <laughs> See, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to avoid this term at any rate, uh, because I, I listen to my commentaries and I keep using that phrase all the time, at any rate. Um, I'm trying to move away from that. So uh, what's something else I could use besides at any rate? Um... Well, what I'm trying to say is, uh, the Talmud states concerning this passage in Deuteronomy, alright, let's quote, uh, let's look at the Talmud real quick, and, um, and you know what, let me do this real quick before. Since the passage in the Torah, in Deuteronomy here, is so short, Deuteronomy 24, let me go ahead and read the relevant verses, and then we'll have the, um, the, the foundation ready to, to discuss what the Talmud has to say. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4, reads this way, quote, this is out of the CJB, um, it's a complete Jewish Bible by David Stern, suppose a man marries a woman and consummates the marriage, but later finds her displeasing, because he has found her offensive in some respect. He writes her a divorce document, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house. She leaves his house, goes and becomes another man's wife. But the second husband dislikes her and writes her a get, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house, or the second husband whom she marries dies. In such a case, her first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again as his wife, because she is now defiled. It would be detestable to Adonai, and you are not to bring about sin in the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance, end quote. Um, actually, verse 5 goes on to say, if a man has recently married his wife, he is not to be subject to military service, he is to be free of external obligations, and left at home for one year to make his new wife happy, end quote. Uh, not relevant for marriage and divorce, I guess, per se, but I just had to read that since... Uh, Contextually, it was came right after the passage we just read. Uh, there was a word in there in Hebrew that uh, some of you may not have been familiar with. In verse 3, it says, But the second husband dislikes her and writes her a get. The word get, spelled G-E-T, refers to a, a bill of divorce. And that's probably how it's translated in uh, most English translations, a bill of divorce. That's what a get is, okay? Now, having read the passage, let's now turn to the Talmud. Let's, uh, let's look at what these two schools had to say about these particular passages. Quoting from the Talmud, this is from the Babylonian Talmud, otherwise known as the Bavli. This is from um, Maseket Mishnah, um, sorry, uh, Maseket Gitan, which uh, deals specifically with uh, divorce. Uh, the word get is the root word of the, of the name of the tractate, Gitan. And um, this is from the Mishnah, which is the the, the earlier work, the earlier part of the of the uh, of the Talmud. This is from um, nine, section ten. 
uh, or paragraph 9, section 10. Um, quote, the school of Shammai say a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, as it is said, quote, because he has found in her indecency in a matter, end quote. Of course, that's quoting from the passage we just looked at. But, by comparison, but the school of Hillel say, you remember Hillel was the liberal one, and Shammai was the conservative one. But the school of Hillel say he may divorce her even if she burns his food, as it is said, quote, because he has found in her indecency in a matter, end quote. Now the reason I brought both of these two up is because um, you see that both schools use the same passages to supply their differing interpretations. So it's important for us to know, first of all, the differing opinions and the Judaisms of, of Yeshua's day had to um, deal with the differing opinions between these two great leaders. Both Hillel and Shammai were both great leaders, and yet they had their differing opinions on this matter. Now Rabbi Eliezer, a member of Beit Hillel, has been noted in the Gemara as saying, quote, when a man divorces his first wife, even the altar sheds tears. He's from Hillel. And of course, Hillel was liberal. They allowed anything to go through. But that doesn't mean that Hillel was... Um, what's the word I want to use? It didn't mean that they, that, that they were just uh, um, uncaring about uh, marriages, even though they were liberal in their thoughts and in their views. Uh, even though they allowed a lot of matters to go through. Uh, not not as restrictive as the uh, the school of Shammai was. Still, Eliezer is trying to say, you know what? When a man divorces his wife, even the altar sheds tears. That's taken from the same tractate, ninety uh, b Daf ninety b. His source again for such logic came from Deuteronomy. But this time, in chapter twenty four, Deuteronomy, if we jump down to verses thirteen and fourteen and read those verses, which read um, thirteen reads quote. Well, let me back up to verse 12 to catch the running context. Um, speaking of loaning money to your neighbor, it says in verse 12, If he is poor, you are not to go, to go to bed with what he gave as collateral in your possession. Usually this was something like a cloak. Uh, verse 13 says, Rather, you must restore the pledged item at sunset. Then he will go to sleep wearing his garment and bless you. You are the person who lent the money to him. The end of verse 13 reads, This will be an upright deed of yours before Adonai your God. Verse 14 of verse 24 reads, quote, You are not to exploit a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your brothers or a foreigner living in the land in your town. End quote. We see then that... Um, the justice that's being established. Remember I already said that last week and this week really kind of come together as we establish this 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 concept of justice within the land of Israel and within Jewish communities. Um, we're talking about uh, Rabbi Eliezer's comment about when a man and a woman divorced, even the altar sheds tears. Um, we see that 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 marriage marriages established um, proper relationships between. Well, a man and a woman within the community of Israel. And um, because God himself cares for the relationships between men and men, obviously he's going to care before, b b between relationships between men and women. Um, we saw the example here in chapter 20, um, 24, verses 10 through 13, where it talks about loaning money to your neighbor. And, if you, and of course, 
if if we're talking to a Jewish community, then your neighbor is Jewish, or at least he's the stranger dwelling with you. And uh, this particular person that you're lending money to is probably someone who's you know l- you know less off than you at the moment. He obviously he wouldn't be borrowing money if he if he didn't uh, wasn't in, in dire straits or in, in need. And so we have this person who is in need, and verse fourteen talks about. You know whether he's your own brother or a foreigner living in your in your town. So we see that that the need to be, as it were, aware of your community needs, the community around you, is something that God Himself uh, brings before every Israelite, whether you're Jew or Gentile. You should be aware of your brother's needs. Now, I'm, what I'm trying to describe for you is a call of a homer argument, a light from heavy. If we are to be aware of our brother's needs, our, the foreigners living with us, the neighbors living around us, if we are con- to be concerned with their needs, and God gives us instructions concerning their needs, well then how much more are we to be concerned with the needs of our spouses? That's why Rabbi Eliezer can make such a comment where he says, you know, when a man divorces his first wife, even the altar sheds tears. What he's talking about is he's using circumlocution. The altar, of course, is God. God doesn't want us to mistreat our neighbors. How much more would God want us not to mistreat our spouses? So when divorce takes place, which is a a fracturing of of the relationship, a breakdown in the relationship, well, then how much more would God be hurt? That's why we say the altar sheds tears. Are you beginning to see the picture here? We should really concern ourselves with the relationships in our communities. We shouldn't just be so easy to divorce ourselves, as it were, from our neighbors. When, when relationships go sour between a man and his brother, or a man and his neighbor... Whether he's a fellow Jew or whether he's a foreigner, doesn't matter. The Torah establishes that we are to be concerned with the needs of our fellow uh, 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 the, the people in our community. And you know what? Relationships are going to turn sour from time to time. I know that. That's real life. But we should be not. We should not be so easily and uh, uh, offended and ready to to walk out on the relationship. That's my point. Our communities are 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 fractured and splintered enough as it is. Um, you know, we've got enemies on both sides of us. Um, we as, as Messianic communities, we as Torah communities. And so how much more should we, who are married, also be concerned with the relationships that God has placed in our care? We cannot simply um, go around with this mindset that says, oh well, I've been offended, I'm going to leave. You know where this really breaks down is in church settings, in communities where we've got small churches or messianic communities where they're already small and then someone looks at me funny and I don't like it and so what do I do? I leave. I go to another church down the street. People, that is so wrong. That is so wrong. That is that is not the spirit of Messiah and that is not what the Torah um, enjoins upon us as the people of God. It is so wrong. And my heart grieves when uh, when I see people split uh, and leave churches and leave communities just because they don't like the color of the carpet. Now, of course, I'm speaking in hyperbole, but you get my you get my point. So let's, let, me re- let me read down to the rest of this portion of my commentary, and then I'm going to call this Part A, and then we'll pick it up in Part B. Uh, this discussion about marriage and divorce. So we're under this. Uh, we're we're within this uh, topic of marriage and divorce, and um, let me pull another quote from modern translator and commentator David H. Stern, as is noted in his Jewish New Testament commentary. Um, 
on page 59, he also uh, notes that there is a Jewish tradition that in Messianic times, this is of course according to traditional Judaism, in Messianic times the stricter rulings of Beit Shammai will become the standard instead of the looser um, rulings of Beit Hillel. Again, Hillel was more... Um, more liberal, more relaxed in the way he allowed uh, divorce and remarriage, and uh, Shammai was more strict. He was more uh, conservative. He did not allow as many divorces to go through his courts, so uh, or through his schools um, and and the courts that uh, were established under the tradition of Shammai um, were the stricter of the two. So again, within Jewish circles, there's a tradition that when the when Messiah comes back that um, we're going to hold more to the, the, the rulings of Beit Shammai. And as I understand it, Yeshua, especially in Matthew chapter 5, in his um, further commentary to the Beatitudes, there read Matthew chapter 5 and go through verse... Um, let me just turn to it real quick. Matthew 5, and look at, I'd say, start with verse... 21 and read down through the rest of the passage and you'll see that Yeshua seems to be also following the tradition of Shammai especially when he gets to verse 27 and he talks about committing adultery um, 27 through 30 and then verse 31 he talks about um, giving the wife a get um, and he seems to directly side with the ruling of Shammai, where the, where the school of Shammai said that a man may not divorce his wife unless he is found on chastity in her. Um, Yeshua says in Matthew 25, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, quote, It was said whoever divorces his wife must give her a get, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of fornication makes her an adulteress, and that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. Quote. Yeshua is definitely holding with a Shammai-type ruling there. He's very strict, and he's not just allowing anything and everything to slip through and allow us to, as it were, practice wife-swapping, which is really what they were doing in Moshe's day. And I believe that's what facilitated the whole notion of um, giving out the gets in the first place. But what we're needing to understand here is that... Um, the Torah seems to teach us that uh, marriage is supposed to be lasting. Yeshua himself addresses this issue of marriage and divorce at Matthew 19. I, I've already read Matthew um, chapter 5 and the relevant passage there, but in Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12, we also see um, marriage and divorce addressed. I'll, I'll probably bring that passage in a little later on in my commentary. In order to properly grasp the halakha of Moshe in Deuteronomy here in 24, and spring into the halakha of our Lord in Matthew, um, I'm going to first address Judaism's common view of marriage itself. And what I do is I pick up the theme of Deuteronomy 23, 18, and 19 as I move into chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And what I'm going to do is, in, in part B here of my commentary, um, I'm going to carry the full continuity of my thoughts by supplying a sample reader's question for us to look at. But before I go there, let's go ahead and break it off right here, call this part A, and when we return, we'll look at the sample question that a reader of mine supplied, and from there, we'll be able to look at um, more details concerning marriage as seen through the eyes of the Jewish community. Okay? Stay with us. <laughs> 